Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Each year, over 500,000 people die around the world from drug-related causes, and the vast majority of those deaths are related to opioids. Thousands of the lives lost are Canadian lives. The old ways of thinking about, legislating around, and policing drug use have failed. New ways of thinking about drug policy, including an emphasis on safe supply, destigmatization, and treatment, are ascendant. But more must be done. Decriminalizing drugs reduces harm and saves lives. That's what the evidence says. The policy is advocated by the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, the Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse and Addiction, and many, many others. So, should Canada decriminalize drugs? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Scott Bernstein, Director of Policy with the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. When it comes to drug policy, there doesn't seem to be a panacea, but it does seem to be the case that that decriminalization does an awful lot of good, and there's a, quite a strong case to be made for it. So can you start by, by giving me a rundown of the, of the top reasons to support decriminalization? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, like this issue has been framed politically as, you know, decriminalization is not a silver bullet or, or as you phrase it, a, a panacea. Um, and, and I, I agree with that. And I think nobody, nobody is saying it is, but when we start to unpack the issue in the policy of decriminalization, we see it actually, it actually is a key component to, um, uh, reaching a lot of the objectives that we'd want to see around a substance use. And so, um, for, for example, um, you know, we, we've created this, this model of prohibition that's over a hundred years now where, where our response to substance use is to criminalize uh, many activities along the market. So we criminalize, um, we criminalize the people who produce them. Uh, on, without authority, we can tr- criminalize the people who traffic or distribute drugs without uh, authority. And, and I say without authority because the the reality is we have a lot of substances in in our society, o- often ones that are quite risky, like like other kinds of opioids that we we actually produce uh, and and sanction and allow distribution through a doctor's prescription and a pharmacist. And so in this case, though, we've set up prohibition, we've criminalized supply distribution, and ultimately, um, when we talk about decriminalization, we're thinking about the the end user. And so the person who uh, purchases drugs uh, illegally from um, somebody on the street or from a friend or whoever grows their own, um, and uh, and then consumes them, and so the crime here is is possession of the drugs uh, that that we criminalize in Canada. And so, by by doing that, uh, we we've created this system now that is, is labeling an activity that many people are engaging in, often without harmful impact to themselves or society. Uh, we've labeled it a crime, and so we start with uh, the first thing that decriminalization would do is it would re- remove those criminal penalties. And, and by doing that, it removes a lot of the stigma that we just naturally attach to people we call criminals. And so we think, you know, you're doing something against the law, you're you're a criminal. And we we stigmatize this because one of the pers- 
purposes of criminal law is to uh, set out, you know, society's uh, distaste or disapproval of certain activities like murder, murder, rape, theft, etc. And so by including the possession of drugs in that category, we're, we're labeling people criminals. So the first thing decriminalization would do is remove that stigma. And second, there's also this, this impact of uh, p- having people go through the criminal justice system without mm. real uh, positive outcome or end. And so, you know, we, we, there, there are a whole line of activities that happen when we criminalize from, you know, police having the authority to stop people on the street to search them, uh, to confiscate drugs, to uh, write up a citation uh, for people, uh, charge them with a crime, um, you know, prosecutors to, to lay charges, judges to, you know, or courts to require you to show up, judges to issue a verdict. Like all of these things are actions taken against the persons who, who's using drug without really any benefit to public health or safety in society that we've seen through, through the evidence. And so, um, you know, we remove these, all these factors. It hassles people a lot, but it also saves us a lot of money. And so the second, second thing I want to emphasize is decriminalization means that uh, police and courts and the justice system really just stand down and, um, you know, and, and we don't need to spend as much money on chasing simple drug users um, for that. Uh, and and we can reallocate that money elsewhere. I want to just jump in there for a second, uh, because it, it says something to me that the Association of, of Police Chiefs in Canada supports decriminalization and the prosecutors have now been given guidelines uh, that de-emphasize the pursuit of public charges for those who are using drugs for personal use or have small amounts for drugs uh, of drugs for personal use. If, if the prosecutors and police chiefs are saying this policy doesn't work, it seems to me that it supports your point. Yeah, and I think you know the 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 police know, and I th- I think even even long before they were coming out and saying it, they knew, you know, like they they're on the street, like they've, you know, they, they often see the same people are getting arrested again and again and again, and so I think they you know they ex- they realize the futility uh, of treating um, what what is ultimately the for some people a a health issue. Or, or globally as a public health issue for, for us as society, treating that as, as a criminal justice issue just doesn't get us anywhere. We never, we never solve the problems we're trying to solve. And I think, you know, when, once we decriminalize, we, we lower the stigma, we take away the policing resources, and it opens up a lot of doors to uh, engaging this community of people in a much different way. And so, you know, for some people, for some people, we, we simply want to say, like, we want to educate you if you're if you're using drugs. You know, we don't we don't think it's a good idea, but uh, maybe we or maybe we do think it's a good idea in right. some cases. But, but well, you know, here's how you do it more safely. Here are some services you can access. Here are, um, you know, here are here are uh, access to treatment or to. Uh, safe consumption sites or other kinds of, of interventions that we know actually do work. And I think, I think, you know, the criminalization has created uh, not only individual stigma, it's created discrimination within our healthcare system for people who, you know, show up and are ashamed to talk about their drug use, or if it's found out that you're, you're using drugs for 
non-medical reasons, you're you're denied other kinds of treatments or you're treated differently. Right. So I think that's a that's actually like a, a big barrier. Um, and we want to we want to see these programs rolled out, safe supply or treatment or prevention or whatever. But we we sort of can't get aside the criminal law standing in the way yet. So I want to chase down this point because I've been arguing and writing recently saying, look, this policy is going to happen. Drugs will be decriminalized and they'll be decriminalized in my lifetime for sure. But we see in British Columbia for now, at least a a temporary measure authorized by Dr. Bonnie Henry that allows registered nurses and registered psychiatric nurses to dispense opioids or opioid alternatives and and uh, and other drugs as well. So so um, uh, benzodiazepines and also stimulants are are on the list. And 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 um, and, and the the registered nurses and the nurse uh, the registered nurses being allowed to prescribe is in addition to already uh, having the authority um, since the start of COVID for right. um, doctor doctors to prescribe and and nurse practitioners. Right. But what I'm getting at is that what we're seeing provincially and municipally, these efforts are rolling out. Safe consumption sites, supports from doctors and nurses, and so on. I wonder, though, because you mentioned what's standing in the way, if there's an order to doing this that's most effective. I mean, what is that order? Is there a concern that we need to have X, Y, or Z in place before we pursue decriminalization? Or is it that decriminalization helps the safe supply treatment and so on? Um, well, I, I think, you know, and it's often like, like I'll also just not answer your question first <laughs> by saying something else, which is, which is that it, this is all, this conversation is often framed in the context of an either or, you know, where the federal government yeah. says, oh no, we don't, we don't support decriminalization because we support safe supply. And I think, I think what you're getting at when you start to ask about the order and talk about how how things relate to each other is is the fact that they actually do relate to each other yes. very well and and they're important and so I think my my sense on the order of things is is that the thing we know for certain right now is that we have we have a poison drug supply uh, but we also have a criminalization of people who use drugs which is a bad thing and and we know from the evidence that just uh, not having um, criminalization is helpful. And so I think that is something that we, we should do uh, immediately and, and as an urgent, an urgent step to helping access to all these other things. Safe supply, while we, we, think it's a, we think it's a good program, it still hasn't reached its full capacity. We're learning about it. And, and the fact that the province is now sort of adjusting, you know, who, who gets to prescribe and they're, they're mostly dealing with issues of access. So a lot of a lot of times rural or small communities don't have a doctor that's there full time. They have nurses. And so giving giving the authority of the nurses is is very could be very helpful for uh, remote places, for example. And so I think I think the decriminalization sh- should come first or at least these things should be done simultaneously. But we we can't really wait for some optimal setting to say, okay, we have all these things in place. Now is the time to decriminalize. And so, you know, that's another, that's another red herring issue we're we're getting stuck on in Canadian society. You know, I want to 
chased down this point because when you were talking about this, I was thinking about the pandemic and the line that governments kept using that speed trumps perfection in a crisis. Well, we're in the midst of a drug crisis, of, a, of an overdose crisis. Why would speed trump perfection for one but not the other? Yeah, I, I I don't know, and it and it and I guess my my answer would be it shouldn't, and and I think there there's very, um, you know, we could we could study or look very closely at how the two. Uh, responses to public health emergencies were were quite different, and how we responded to the pandemic by sort of marshalling services and essentially like shutting down society for a period to to deal with this while we while we learned, and um, ultimately we're going on we're going on you know our 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 third year public health of a public public we're going on the, i think actually we hit the third year anniversary we're going on the fourth year of a public health emergency in bc but it's been um it's been five years or so since we've had fentanyl contaminating the market and we're still sort of not you know not really marshaling our resources to address that and it's not the first drug crisis in british columbia i talked to travis lupic on the last episode and his book was about the drug crisis of the 1990s. So it's not even as if this is a new problem that we're just trying to wrap our heads around for the first time. This has happened before. Absolutely. And so in the, um, you know, the first drug crisis was a little bit different um, factors. Now, now we're dealing with uh, fentanyl and contamination in the market. So that's a, a little bit, a little bit different, but you're right. The, these, these issues have sort of been there and, um, some form in, um, in, in one form or another. So what about models? When we, when we talk about this, to the extent that the public is sort of lightly aware of the issues, of the policy responses that are available, they think of Portugal. When I talk about this, when I write about this, one of the first things I hear from people is, oh, you mean Portugal? That's often, Portugal's often cited as a model that that people seem to prefer, sometimes as a critique, but often, I think most often in support. Is there a global model that we ought to be chasing or, you know, do we need to come up with our own? Or at least is there, there are some, are, is there some best practices that we need to be pursuing? I think the, the interesting issue about Portugal is, is it's also been used uh, in the past when advocates raise the issue of decriminalization um, the the response of the government uh, would be like, well, we're not Portugal, you know, in the, and that sort of, yeah. sort of, <laughs> yeah, it sort of implies like Portugal did did some special things that we haven't yet done that made it okay for them to do decriminalization. And I think the reality on the ground is is Portugal created a made in Portugal model that fit their their own situation, um, where they at the time they did not have scaled up uh, medical services and access to treatment or interventions for uh, people who use drugs, including harm reduction, and, and they scaled that up in, in response as part of their decriminalization. But the other issue with Portugal is, is they've created a system of medical surveillance uh, to replace policing or replace uh, criminal uh, charges that, that I think you know, many Canadians would have a problem with. Uh, it's it's just a bit too intrusive on civil liberties and in sort of our idea of like the relationship of the state 
to people. And so I, I don't think we should hold out for Portugal's model. We should look at that and say, you know, le- learn lessons of largely like, you know, they, they decriminalized and did not see uh, a lot of these scare harms that people warn about. You know, they did not see like a huge increase of drug use. They saw lowering of overdoses. They saw all these all these positive outcomes from it, which which were related to not criminalizing people. And so I think I think in Canada we we definitely do need a made in Canada approach. But but again, you know, I, I would argue like just we the, the main factor we have to think about is is the policing and the criminality. Like we can't we we, we don't have the luxury of waiting to sort of think about uh, all the alternatives that need to be in place before we can decriminalize. I think I think decriminalizing is is simply simply that not charging people with criminal penalties and not having interactions with the police. And so if we do that though, I think you know we ultimately we will save a lot of money. We we can start thinking about what kinds of new interventions we need or access to treatment or prevention or education or other other kinds of things, um, including harm reduction that that we should ramp up. But they, we don't have to sit and wait for this optimal model, uh, particularly when we're trying to think about solutions in the context of a pandemic crisis. Right. Which leads to the logical corollary that, or question rather, what's holding things up? Now, I want to get into the politics of the policy. Everybody now, the federal government, you know, anyone in charge loves policy based on evidence, or at least they pretend to. It's become a sort of shibboleth for governments. They believe in evidence based policy making, of course, with caveat, except when they don't. So I'm looking at this issue, and to me, having thought about it, researched it, talked to people about it. It is, as an evidence-based policy, obviously a winner. Politically, perhaps not, is the pushback, at least. So what's holding up things politically, and how much is this about the United States and concerns that if we were to decriminalize the United, uh, decriminalize drugs, we'd end up with uh, problems with the United States, trade problems, for instance? A large problem is uh, the United States is is behind us by many many years. Like they still they still do not have um, a sanctioned supervised consumption site, and that's something we're we're now going on uh, almost twenty years of having insight in place. Um, in uh, twenty twenty three, it'll be it'll be twenty years for that. Uh, so they're, they're quite quite behind us in. Uh, dr- drug policy in in some respects, um, and so I think I think there there would be a, a bit of a pushback from the U.S. But I think also that's like we shouldn't really discount um, the the Canadian popula- population's uh, confusion and perhaps resistance to decriminalizing as well. And so I think there, there's still a lot of investment in people people thinking about um, drug policy for, as a criminal issue and thinking about like you know the solution to the solution to our drug problem is is we haven't policed enough you know we haven't gone after the suppliers we haven't you know criminalized enough like there there are still a lot of people who think that and i think it's it's sort of you know when we have a government that's not 
in a you know completely secure uh, governing position, um, they're vulnerable to to sort of being painted as as like liberalizers even even beyond what they're willing to liberalize. And so I think you know we saw that in the last federal election where yeah. where um, the the conservative party w- was attributing to the Trudeau government like positions that it that it you know explicitly said it didn't want to take on like including decriminalization but also legalization of all drugs and so i think i think the, the you know like like it depends on where you're standing in canada um in in british columbia uh we're we have a majority of the people in in British Columbia would like to see decriminalization, um, not not so much in the rest of the country. Often, perhaps how the question is is asked. I think if we if we ask people um, now, you know, should uh, should substance use be treated as a criminal justice issue, or or if there's a problem as a health issue, people would would overwhelmingly say as a health issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I think when it comes down to the question of should we decriminalize drugs, which is essentially the same question, people people you know freak out about the term and and about the idea. So I think I think what needs to happen um, is is a bit of education for sure or, around what what it means to decriminalize, um, what what would what that would suggest, what the benefits are, uh, what, what kinds of things we might accept or, or expect from that and also just what the evidence shows in other places that have decriminalized because because de- decriminalization is actually um uh, like there there are you know over 40 jurisdictions in the world uh including like you know individual US states or european countries or um all over the globe that have tried some form of decriminalization of drugs and so it's not a it's not a radical policy approach by any means and you would expect at some point that governments need to lead on this, right? By which I mean, there are times when governments need to follow public opinion, and there are times when governments need to lead public opinion. And I think back to same-sex marriage, for instance. With same-sex marriage, there were political, there was political and court leadership on legalizing same-sex marriage. And one of the findings of political science was that that once politicians and the courts had framed it as an equal rights issue and passed the law, uh, people started to change their mind. They came along with them and public opinion moved. So presumably we could move public opinion on this as well. It's not like governments don't have any cover. For instance, I think many on the left would support the liberals in doing this. And as I mentioned in the introduction, talking to you, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the Canadian Association of, of Chiefs of Police, the Canadian Center uh, for Substance Abuse and Addictions, Dr. Henry in British Columbia, lots of provincial authorities support this policy. So it's not like it's coming out of nowhere. Yeah, governments of Vancouver, municipal governments, Vancouver, Toronto, um uh, and even and even the Liberal Party platform, if you'll recall yes. at the last convention, they they the the members of the Liberal Party in deciding the the platform, you know, w- wanted this. They passed a resolution, uh, as did as did uh, NDP, right? And so it's 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 an issue that like sort of has its time and and it's waiting for leadership, as you say. And so I think I think you're absolutely right. Like the the uh, you know I I feel. 
I feel that the Liberal Party could take this on as an issue, make its case for it. Um, like certainly there would be some blowback, but I, I think it's it would it would be weathered, and uh, particularly in in framing it as uh, a response to COVID. Like we're we're you know in in British Columbia we're now seeing the harms to people who use drugs, and I think all over the country as well. The harms to people who use drugs are exacerbated by COVID. And uh, this this would be to me, this seems like a humane and common sense response that uh, ultimately people would agree with. And and I think you're absolutely right. Like frame it, frame it as a human rights issue and a public health issue. And pe- Canadians are Canadians are reasonable people for the most part. We'll we'll get we'll get on board with it. As we have with other things, cannabis, for instance, and I understand that cannabis is a different sort of substance than say an opioid or a psychedelic it's also a different it's a different sort of market you know i think i think you know the the cynic the cynic in me is you know thinking about all the the big cannabis interests that are talking to government like come on push this over the finish line uh you know do it like we really want this this new market opened and you know and that's that's the thing we get the results on um, you know, in, in, in reality, re- reality, you know, can- cannabis wasn't the huge problem to be solved. It's, it was a problem for sure. But but I think, you know, it was sort of the lower hanging fruit because it's it's not, you know, nobody nobody dies from smoking cannabis. Yeah. Where are the pharmaceutical companies on this? I assume there's a complicated relationship in part because of their their effect on the opioid crisis in the first place, but I haven't seen a lot from their end. No, I, I, I actually don't know. And I think, I think, you know, like there's like largely when we talk about things like safe supply or, or, you know, providing alternatives to the uh, poisoned drug market, uh, the, the producers of that are, are pharmaceutical companies yeah. that have been contracted to, you know, or, or, or often what we're seeing is like, you know, we're substituting a, um, a, a stock opioid like hydromorphone for heroin. <laughs> so, you know, which right. people, people were, were seeking out or, or using. So we're using something that's already produced by a pharmaceutical company. Like I, I, I don't really know where they are. Like, I, I think, I think they should be in, engaged in this conversation, particularly if we're starting to, to think about creating legal sources for some of these drugs beyond, beyond just a, a limited safe supply. I want to go back to the framing a little bit because you touched on it a little bit as human rights and public health and personal, physical and mental health. And if you're an advocate for this policy, if you're a politician who's trying to sell it to the public, how do you frame it? Do you think that the best framing is, is the health frame first and foremost? Because when we talk about first, you know, recreational drug use, there's the health frame that we want to use to keep people safe and alive. Then there's the freedom frame. People should be able to do what they want. Uh, There's the frame of, you know, better us than criminals and mafioso and so on. Presumably, we can't have all these frames at once. Maybe we can. But if we're focusing on the core of it, how should we be talking about this? Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. And and the, you know, like like largely like for people like myself, you know, I'm motivated by 
um, you know, by like human rights and by health and things like that. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the general public, maybe that's not the, the, the top issue. And, and people, you know, sometimes have the difficulty in making the connection of, you know, human rights to consume drugs and not be arrested by them, for example, or do what you want with your body. Uh, but I think, I think the real selling point is around costs. And, and we spend, we spend billions of dollars, uh, every year on the drug war and, you know, ad- adding this, adding this up across, you know, the globe and, um, you know, in, in countries in the world, we've, we spent trillions and trillions of dollars fighting this hopeless war on drugs. Uh, and drugs are now more accessible than ever. Uh, to anybody who wants them. And, and with the internet, you can, you know, get, get them on the internet. You can find them sold anywhere. Like we, we've largely been fighting this war for over a hundred years. That's cost us so much money and so much lost uh, life and lives and productivity uh, and, and without the benefit. And so I think one of the biggest ar- arguments we, we can make, I think, is that this is, this is not an efficient policy. Like we, we can do better by, uh, by by thinking about this from from a better viewpoint, like these these funds, this money that we're dumping into policing and criminal justice, maybe we want to put that somewhere else. And so I think that's that's one of the stronger arguments I think that that resonate with people because everybody everybody sort of wants their government to you know keep keep good tabs on the tax money. Um, but but I think I think also ultimately we are, are framing the issue when we start seeing. Uh, things like moms or families talk about uh, the experiences they've had with children or family members uh, dying of overdose like that. To me, that's really powerful because it brings home the message that, you know what, this isn't, this isn't a crisis that's limited to, you know, some folks in the downtown East side or, you know, in, in central Montreal. Uh, It's, it's an issue that affects all of us. And so it's affecting it's affecting men working working in the construction and oil extraction industries. It's infect, it's affecting uh, indigenous people. It's affecting people of color. It's affecting you know all the all these sectors of society where where we we know people. It's our families and our friends and our children that that are suffering from this. So I think those those are powerful arguments to make as well. And you would think that you'd be able to build a political coalition around a few different frames and interests there and a few different benefits from the policy. I mean, progressives have been for this for a long time and have been trending towards it for a long time. Libertarians have been there for years for their own reasons. I mean, William F. Buckley, who had a more sensibly take, had a more sensible take on drugs in the 1960s than a lot of progressives and centrists do today. They come from a different space they come at it from a different direction the liberty direction the small government direction but they get to more or less the same place so it strikes me that this is an an issue around which you could build a coalition if you wanted yeah absolutely and i and i think it you know it plays out in canada and it's even more uh, pronounced uh, in in the states where you see um a, a lot of these cannabis legalization um, referenda happening in states are, are, you know, a lot of it's about the freedom to do what I want with my own body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want government telling me what to do. Um, you know, and sort of, it's sort of the framing, it, it, it is sort of a strange coalition of, uh, of people 
um, people on the left and the right for different reasons. But I think I think you're absolutely right. Like there's there's a lot of arguments to be made for why, why this is good policy, why this is policy backed up by a lot of evidence. Um, and and it's it's generally like something that a majority of Canadians will get behind. And, and, and you're right. Like, it's good. It's going to happen. Like, like, I yeah. think, I, I think we're, you know, we're going to look and, and it, it'll be one of these awkward moments where, um, you know, like the, the government will change their mind on this and, and we'll say, what took you so long to come <laughs> yeah. around? And, you know, I had a, oh, I had a, you know, I rethought my position or something, but, but they will, like, they will come around. And I think it's, it's uh, because like, like ultimately, Ultimately, I think we gravitate towards better policies eventually, and uh, this is this is definitely one that's whose time has come and is long overdue. You mentioned the pandemic earlier, and one of the huge problems in British Columbia has been, I mean, not just in British Columbia, but it's most pronounced in this country in BC. The pandemic has had a tremendous effect and a deleterious effect on uh, on the op- opioid the overdose crisis by affecting supply but also as i talked to travis travis lupic on the last episode uh, but i also further marginalizing communities in which people are using substances so i'm wondering to what extent the pandemic has highlighted in some sense emphasized the need for decriminalization because you know there's a tendency to say well we can't do that right now we need to focus on the pandemic but it seems to me that the pandemic is all the more reason to do it right now right and so so um but by by any means we weren't doing great uh around uh addressing the overdose crisis before the pandemic um and what happened is the pandemic has has made it so much worse and i think you know we look at we look at just bc we had for three months in a row we had a record number of deaths in the province um, for June, July, and August, where which which is uh, over 170 people each month uh, had died from overdoses, uh, and, and that's dwarf, dwarfing the number of people who died from the pandemic from from COVID. Right. And and I th- uh, so I think you're right. So what what happened was a sort of global global economic uh, collapse and uh, affected. Uh, supply chains where borders were closed, and uh, the, one of the issues we have with an illegal uh, drug supply is, is that uh, fentanyl and other contaminants are introduced in, into it, and so this made it uh, more unpredictable and, and more dangerous uh, to have the supply shaken. But also, what happened is, you know, we were uh, we were all told, you know, stay at home, don't uh, don't go out, you know, and and. Uh, communities of people living uh in marginalized circumstances if you're you're without a home or you're um underhoused or something you you don't have that luxury necessarily of staying staying at home and so i think i think you know people were not able to uh, address the the covid response as well it is very difficult uh, and then we also saw the the third thing was a bit of a disruption of services that that sort of ha- had been you know wor- working a bit uh, at least localized things like supervised consumption sites or overdose prevention sites were um were now shut down or had reduced hours and so people were ultimately 
doing the thing we didn't want them to do, which is which is purchase from a unpredictable and dangerous drug supply and then take take those drugs home and consume them privately. And so that that is a recipe for overdose and and death. And and so we we need you know we needed to uh, think more about integrating people into the community. The, the safe supply. Uh, is intended to address the problem of the toxic market for some people, mm-hmm. um, but but ultimately, you know, the the fact of criminalization is is still there, and and it's you know whether it whether it doesn't result in somebody getting charged, you know, the 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 police often say we don't you know we don't charge, uh, we we don't arrest people for simple drug possession. No, but but they they sometimes confiscate the drugs, and so mm. if you've if you've had to engage in sex work or other risky activities, you now are, are in a point where you're, you know, perhaps going into withdrawal and have to do that again. And so I think it's, it's ultimately makes the situation worse. And I, and I think what we need to be thinking about is, is sort of engaging populations with alternatives to policing and not, not, um, you know, not, not having the police as the first responder out there, you know, some of these ideas, ideas around reallocating police funds, I think are very useful. And as long as, as long as I'm talking about that, just to go back to a point you made, uh, or you you asked about uh, models of decriminalization, um, like one one of the issues with the chiefs of police uh, report, you know, we're, we're happy they're talking about decriminalization and the importance of it. But they're also proposing sort of an alternative policing model that I think is is not a good idea. Like we don't mm-hmm. we don't we don't need to put in things like fines. We don't need to think about diversion. We don't need to, um, you know, have have the police now acting as gatekeepers towards other things. Uh, it, it's really about the police just standing down, and we don't need we don't need to further harm people by by you know making them pay fines that they can't pay um and going to showing up at court to fight them or having breaches like we just need to not engage on that realm at all yeah and this ties in i mean it takes us a little bit beyond our purposes but it, it it takes us into a broader discussion about the nature of policing in our communities and how we want perhaps to re-envision how that policing works. But I want to close on legalization. People often confuse decriminalization and legalization. They're different. But where does legalization fit into the into all of this? Where is it on the policy horizon? Should it be a goal in the long term? Do you have to decriminalize first and then legalize? Is that even something that's feasible in this country anytime soon? Where are we on, on legalization? Well, I'm 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 uh, I'm 55, and I've I've said before, you know, my goal is to to have legal regulation uh, before I retire. Well, we need to do, we need to do better for you. Then we need to hustle. Yeah. Um, well, I th- so I think I think the answer to your question is is like yes, like if we ultimately are are willing to call an armistice or a truce or ceasefire in the war on drugs, the 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 answer. Uh, is to have some legally regulated market in place for people who use drugs, and so we 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 know we know from millennia that human beings 
consume, want to consume substances. And so the difference between decriminalization and legal regulation is, is largely the conversations around decriminalization are, are talking about decriminalizing um, personal possession. And so it's, it's the individual at the end of the supply chain using the drugs who's being decriminalized, which is great. So we, we need that. Uh, what, it, what it doesn't address, though, are all those other actors uh, who are producing the drugs, who are distributing them, who are, you know, basically operating this this large illegal industry that has led to a poisoned uh, drug supply and is often run by organized criminal elements. And so I think to address that, we, we have to we have to create a new market and create a new system where government sets the rules through regulations and and legal regulation is not is not really a foreign concept we regulate everything we regulate driving and skydiving and food and beverages and 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 a whole lot of drugs harmful drugs are regulated uh in you know to minimize and reduce risks and so um it's really the exception for the, the sort of the, you know, the illegal drugs now, it's the exception that we've chosen to not regulate them. And we've ultimately ceded control to um, un, uncontrolled, unregulated, un, often unethical actors who, who are interested in just profit. And, and what, what, our, what legal regulation would do is it would give government the control to adjust the market to, to set other objectives that we all want to see, things like improved individual and public health and public safety. And so those those things uh, could be tweaked through a new market. Like that said, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a long haul to get there, but I think I think it's not a conversation we we can you know, not have, <laughs> like we need to start the conversation yeah. somewhere. And so that's one of the, one of the things I'm, I've been doing in my work is we've uh, created a, a collective of organizations um, called the regulation project. So we have a website regulationproject.org. but um, some of the things we're doing is try to figure out how to talk to uh, people just about what regulation is and, and to demystify it a bit. And so you're not, you know, you're not, um, we want to address like people's fear when they hear legal, legalized drugs, they think, oh, you know, there's going to be a, there's going to be a bucket of heroin at the, at the Safeway. Um, no, not, not necessarily. Like, I think there's, th- these are all questions about like who, you know, who should have access to drugs and how do we provide access and how do we consume them? Those are all questions that, that have different answers to them. And so we're trying to engage the public on on some of these questions about what a legal legally regulated market would look like but it, but I think we decriminalization and legal regulation aren't aren't necessarily um a, a along points along a spectrum they're they they have to go hand in hand and so I think we with cannabis in Canada we saw a legally regulated market but we also saw one that is also quite criminalized. And so if you if you operate outside of the legal market, you're, you're still uh, subject to some serious criminal penalties. And so um, and so I think we, we need to be thinking about these things as working uh, hand in hand where we are we are both decriminalizing and legally regulating. Th- that said, I think I think politically um, legal regulation is still many years off. 
um, it's it's a, a bit much to chew on, whereas decriminalization is now, like as, as you've said, it's sort of like seeping seeping into the consciousness of people in different ways where uh, they're open to they're open to thinking about decriminalization because they're really aware of the harms that they're caused to end users, like people who use drugs of criminalization. And so there, there's more political will to do that one first. But um, ultimately, ultimately, I, I would agree. Like we need to think about, um, think about a legal market for providing the drugs that people actually want to use or are using in in forms and in ways that minimize the risk and um, in, increase safety. And so, one of the I'll, I'll just I'll just finish that uh, thought with one of one of the outcomes of a system of prohibition for a hundred years is uh, so something that's called the, the Iron Law of Prohibition. And it's where when you prohibit activities or substances, you drive the market towards more dangerous and potent forms of, of the drugs. And so, you know, we don't, we don't see things like opium tea or smokable opium in Canadian society anymore, uh, even though those products are, are much less harmful than heroin or fentanyl or definitely carfentanyl, um, which is which is what's in in the supply now. And so those are those are driven away because of um, fear of criminal penalties and people want to pack and and transport things in more concentrated forms. With, with a legally regulated market, we could steer people towards less harmful um, substances. And so, you know, maybe maybe people don't need to get heroin. Maybe maybe they'd be okay with opium tea or with um, or with smokable opium a few times a day. Well, as we've mentioned, we're going to get there. We'll get there someday. I think we'll get there in my lifetime, and and I certainly think the sooner the better. But that brings us to time. So let me start by thanking you for joining me today and for having this discussion. Thank you. It's really been my pleasure to, to chat with you about this. My thanks, as always, to Mira Ahmad, Luke Gilmore, and Aaron Reynolds, without whom this podcast would not be possible. And as always, again, my thanks to everyone uh, who's listening, wherever you may be. And if you are interested in this issue, I highly recommend that you get involved, that you write to your MLA or MPP or your MNA or your MP in Ottawa, and, and we'll get this done. So thanks again to Scott Bernstein, to the the team that makes this podcast possible, and to all of you.